Research is a podcast that explores current nutritional research and health studies. Our lawyer says we have to let you know that this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informative purposes only. If you have any health questions, see your doctor or licensed health professional. So welcome, everybody. So I'm Lisa. I'm Lindsay. Welcome to Research. And today we're going to give you our first episode where we're actually both talking about different studies at the same time because for the new year, we wanted to find some recent cool studies on health hacks because it's January, it's a pandemic, we need some health inspiration and we want to bring it to you. So we're each going to go over two different really cool health hacks that you can use and give your clients information on how to use as well to kick off 2021 in the best way possible for your health. I know these are awesome little takeaways that people can easily start incorporating uh, to get the max bang for their buck, which is all what we're after. I mean, it's nobody has time to do lots of convoluted, intense changes right it's all about small little changes we can start incorporating right away and this is gonna help yay looking forward to it all right so So let's should we review the topics first so we we're gonna go over four uh studies for up-to-date information uh first we're doing plant polyphenols and how they can improve health super interesting yeah really cool what what's next for you you that one um, I found one on uh, a review study on lifting. Awesome. Strength training, Strength resistance. Training. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, after that, we're going to talk about fiber, which is underrated in my book. And we're going to find out exactly how underrated it is because it's awesome. Yes, I can totally imagine. Uh, the last study is going to be about bone health and supplements for uh, improving bone health. Nice. Yay. This is Yay. awesome. All right, shall we get started? Let's go. Go for it. Okay. So the first thing we're going to talk about is plant polyphenols. I have an amazing review article here. It's uh, I've I've pulled all the important takeaways from you. It was a big involved one. Um, healthy effects of plant polyphenols, molecular mechanism. So it does get pretty heavy into biochemistry and epigenetics. If anybody wants to go and read it on their own, but if you don't want to, then just listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we've known for a long time that the polyphenols in plants, so these are the chemicals that make the plants colorful. This is what gives the plants their color. Uh, There's thousands of them, but they kind of fall into some main categories. But we've known for a long time how good they are for us. I mean, they, they help overall health because they have lots of antioxidants in them. They're actually antimicrobial, uh, anti-hypertensive, so they can help lower blood pressure, which is really cool. Hypoglycemic, so they help lower blood sugar. And they're also, uh, they act in um, a way that vasodilates. So this again ties back to blood pressure. Um, so we've known this for a while. Uh, plant polyphenols are really cool. They're actually produced by plant as a protective mechanism against bacteria and fungi in nature. So the plant is producing these on purpose, putting a lot of energy and resources into producing them to protect itself. And then of course we eat the plants 
and we get a lot of the same properties from it. So it's it's really neat. There's actually, if I can plug another podcast, there's a really cool podcast if you want to learn more about this called In Defense of Plants. And basically he goes through and talks about all the different plants and why plants produce the chemicals they do and how they affect humans. So it's really so interesting. And nature is fascinating. Over hundreds, thousands, millions of years so that each species can have their own survival mechanisms, which may help them survive, but it may also yeah. help other species like us survive by eating more plants. Well, and they all work in slightly different ways, which means they benefit us in slightly different ways, which is why, I mean, one of the, the cornerstones of right. nutrition is variety, right? Like you don't want to just eat one vegetable or one fruit. Like you want all the colors of the rainbow. And this is why, because each of them, behaves in a slightly different way. So this study focused a lot on olive oil, uh, some of the different polyphenols found in olive oil. Um, it talked a little bit about uh, curcumin, which is the component that makes turmeric that bright yellow color. It's been known for a long time. It's anti-inflammatory. We're going to look at why. And then it talked a lot about resveratrol and there was a few others, but that's kind of what it focused on. So there's some good starts right there. Start buying the best quality olive oil you can afford. Get it in your diet as much as possible. Yeah. Maybe drink a little bit of red wine. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and get some curry. So when we look at polyphenols, uh, some of the cool ways that it acts. So one of the ways is it's an anti-aggregate with proteins. And this works um, in a few different ways. But do you know much about um, a little bit. Alzheimer's disease? Yeah. So what, what happens with that is we have yes. these things called amyloid plaques. Yeah. Which is aggregated. It's like misfolded aggregated protein that kind of clumps up and starts disrupting how the cells function. What these plant polyphenols do if you consume them in high quantities is it helps the cells prevent the formation of these plaques to begin with these aggregated proteins. And it helps clear out proteins that aggregate as they happen and so it's protecting the cells on a few different fronts and so it's actually really really good like these plant polyphenols are really beneficial nice. to the nervous system um, the other thing it does is we know it's anti-inflammatory but it's specifically anti-inflammatory in nervous tissue because it activates something called the microglial activation system uh, which calms inflammation in the brain so this is one of those uh, if I understand correctly, uh, I'm not a neuroscientist. Microglial cells are nervous cells that kind of act as hybrids with the immune system. So it's kind of a, if I understand this correctly, it's kind of one of these dual function cells. Um, and so by activating these microglial cells, it really calms nice. uh, neural inflammation. Um, the other thing, and you would probably uh, be really good at this, it activates the hormesis pathways do with your toxicity training do you Not remember that term <laughs> i know i had to yes. go look it up because i was like what the heck is this yeah so hormesis is when you look at the toxicity of a drug at low doses it can actually be protective and have beneficial effects but as you increase the dose it becomes right. toxic to the cells so it's one of these again dual function properties where at low doses it's good at high doses it's bad um and so plant polyphenols are actually and i did not know this they stress our cells in a good way 
to encourage the cells to activate like anti-stress responses and cellular protective pathways. So plant polyphenols, they're good for us because they stress us. Love it. Isn't that interesting? And this is going to tie in so nicely to the next study on resistance training, but it's so plants have these chemicals are good for us. They're anti-inflammatory, but they also stress our cells to help them clear out waste and get stronger themselves. Yes. So they, when they look at things like anti-inflammatory, what it's doing is it's stressing the cells to help the cell produce whatever it needs to make it stronger. So whether it's anti-inflammatory, there was a couple of other different ways, um, but it basically activates the cell defense systems that make the cells more resistant. You know, you get these like low doses of these polyphenols constantly and your cells as a whole are just going to become stronger and more resistant. So when we're going to apply this to our clinical clients, new health hacks. Yes. So what you really need to be doing is trying to get just as many polyphenols in your diet as possible. And it's really, again, good quality olive oil. And so this can be using it when you're doing like low temperature sauteing. I tend to add a lot to like spaghetti sauce and chili and things like that. When I'm doing that simmering, I make my own salad dressing. And so I add a lot of good quality olive oil. I make a really good balsamic vinaigrette, which I think I've talked about on the show before. Um, Sometimes I'll add flax oil. It doesn't mention flax here, but again, that's another seed uh, that's really good for us for omega-3s among other things. Making sure you're getting lots of colorful vegetables. And again, we want really bright lots of variety and good amounts like really a good goal is 10 servings a day of vegetables and fruit and this I think (laughs) drives people crazy because most people say fruits and vegetables but it should be vegetables and fruit because we should be focusing on vegetables more just because of the health promoting properties Um, and then of course you know moderate amounts of red wine if you're okay with drinking and you like red wine but even things like grapes go right to the source if you if you don't like wine then just eat the grapes like the fermentation process i think changes how the body uses the polyphenols um we've talked a little bit about fermentation and how it does benefit um and increase nutrient availability you don't have to drink if you don't want to and so you can just go right to the right. source and just be consuming that I mean, there are supplements you can take as well, but food is the best. Get lots of veggies, lots of bright colors. That's really the take home. Um, the other thing I just want to add to, since I know we're running short on time, it really activates on a biochemical level, these polyphenols. But what I also found interesting is it activates on a genetic level as well. So it activates certain, the, the expression of certain protective genes um, and it uses epigenetics to do that, which is a, such a well, cool topic. You have a degree in molecular biology, right? Yeah. So this is very Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love talking about genetics. So maybe in the near future, we'll do a topic on epigenetics and some of the, the uh, lifestyle and dietary factors that we can use to influence that. So yeah, I just thought that was really, really cool. Oh, and it increases Great. insulin sensitivity. Yep. How cool is that? right? Eat the rainbow. Eat more vegetables. Growing, growing, growing evidence. Like we already knew this, but this study, when was the study published? Last year, 2020? Yeah, it was 2020, February 2020. There's even more evidence that fruits and vegetables in different colors are good for your brain, for your blood pressure, for your blood sugar, and overall health. Yeah. 
in so many different ways too. Like there's just so many different ways that these polyphenols affect cells in good ways. So it's not just like, hey, it does this one thing. Yay. It's like, no, they all do all these different things to promote the health of the individual in multi-factorial ways. Very complex so. biochemistry. Yeah. Biochemistry. I, I tried to keep it simple because even for me as I was reading, I was like, <laughs> what is that again? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So now we're uh, talking resistance about training. health. Now we're talking about resistance, oh, resistance training. training so first. Yes. this was um, a cool study on resistance training and they looked at, uh, so it's weight training, basically. They looked at two different things. Yeah. They looked at strength and they looked at hypertrophy, which is muscle growth, like when you get bigger. And uh, mm. again, this was a top level study. It was a systematic review, meta-analysis, a ton of good things, um, good research that they did. And, and what the bottom line is, and I'll say the bottom line at first, we can go into a couple details after, is that when you're looking at growing your muscles, so we'll start with hypertrophy. When you look at growing your muscles, there are different weights that people sometimes recommend. They recommend a lower weight, a moderate weight, or a high weight. And those are yeah. measured by how many reps you can do before you can't do anymore, right? So a so lower weight, you do more exactly. reps. Higher weights, you do so less reps. So a high weight would, a high, high um, load would be anything you can't do more than eight times. If you can't lift that thing with that muscle... Okay more than eight times that's a heavy load weight okay i didn't realize rate. that was a cutoff that's, and then that's for good to know low weight at least in this in this meta-analysis if a low weight is one where you can do more than 15 times that same load with that same muscle okay so when you look at the different range of weights that are recommended for actually growing your muscles this review of 28 studies that looked at 747 men and women who were not athletic weight trainers right it was people who were new to it or people who do it recreationally there was no difference between the loads it? i think that's really interesting i i've heard that before right. but it's neat seeing the evidence it doesn't it just matters personal right. preference do you like lower weights or do you like higher weights but either way the net result you're gonna get more yes. muscle more lean muscle which is just going to improve so this is every the aspect actual of growing health. muscle it smaller weights don't it, yeah there doesn't according to this study which is a review of many studies doesn't seem to grow your muscle any differently than a heavier weight so if growing your muscles yeah. is something you want to do pick what you like so that's the first really cool yeah um thing that was done in the study i have to say that's a really good take home because with activity, you get so many right. people like, oh, you have to do this. If you want to get healthier, you have to start running right. or you have to start lifting weights or you have to do CrossFit or, you know, there's so many different or hit or whatever. But really what we're hearing more and more is just do what you enjoy right. because then you're going to enjoy it and it's going to be something you want to go back to because you have fun doing it and right. it's something that right. you can maintain. And if the net result is the right. same, it doesn't matter how you do it, yep. just do it. that and, and, you do it. And again, it. when it comes to growing muscle, it doesn't matter. The, this looked at, um, the studies it looked at were between six and 11 weeks long. So it was people who were new to weight training or okay. recreational weight trainers. So if you're looking at doing something between six and eight weeks, you'll see results. And then this number of sessions was 16 to 48 sessions. 
over the course of those weeks. So okay. this wasn't an everyday workout and it wasn't done over months and months and months. This is kind of a reasonable short-term gain benefit. So the second part of the study yeah. is they wanted to look at strength. We, we looked at muscle gain and now okay. we're looking at strength. And what they found was when they looked at people who were, again, they weren't trained people, they were either recreational or new to weightlifting, they found that mm -hmm. the more you weightlifted, the less gain you got. Because it's almost like a curve where when you're starting from a really low strength, you can start building your strength well over the course of a few weeks. And then yeah. as you get stronger, it's harder to get proportionally more strong. Right, you, you start to plateau a little bit because you man, you can yeah. do stuff now. Yep. <laughs> so that was cool. And so they also found that when it came to strength, strength increased more when you had a moderate or a heavy load. So the lower load okay. helped or, or was similar to increasing muscle size. But when it came to if you want to get stronger, a moderate or a heavier weight is going to help you get more stronger than a lower weight. But okay. again, as we said, do what you can, what you like, as long as you're going to do it often. Because being strong is good for everything in life. Whether you don't want to be a muscle, um, a weightlifting athlete, you still want to carry groceries. You still, you know, want to do stuff. So yeah. you still want to live life and be able and to be strong to, to, to do things yes. that, that you want to do. So just to kind of wrap up, there was a ton of great information in this study, but I think that the overall takeaways for the health hacks were to, if you want to grow your muscle, it choose any weight that has any load, whether you can lift only eight times or over 15 yeah. times. And when it came to growing your strength and getting stronger, you want to have a higher, moderate to high. So you need to be able to do less than 15 reps in order to get stronger. Okay. And wherever you start from, quote unquote, untrained or recreational, you will gain weight a lot more at the beginning as you start, and then you'll kind of plateau off of it. Gain muscle, you mean, For right? Strength. For strength. You said gain weight. Um, gaining gain strength muscle. Yeah. as opposed to gaining muscle size. Yeah. 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 It was cool. So yeah. Well, and there's been a lot of studies too, talking about like just increasing right. lean muscle mass. It just, it improves overall health again because it increases insulin sensitivity it increases metabolism um it just helps with blood flow like cardiovascular benefits it just it's overall dancing, a good idea i was gonna mention that but i didn't want to awesome. so that's the takeaway health <laughs> hacks for the second study on resistance training and of course all of the studies that we're talking about we're going to link in the show notes so if you want to dive into them in more detail go for it yeah, no, I think that's that's a good takeaway. I mean, and even doing things like squats or lunges I, during commercial breaks, like you can like the that low uh, weight, high rep yes. can be using your own body weight, body resistance. You no, know, when training. I, I it's fantastic. Doing squats when I brush my teeth. It's so oh, yeah, it's I've so done that before. Simple. <laughs> it's literally get into the habit. You're brushing your teeth. You're going to be taking several minutes, and you do, I do squats, and yeah. then I do. Um, the calf raises where you're kind of on your tippy toes. So I squat down and then I go tippy toes and I squat yep. down and I tip. 
as I'm brushing my teeth. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great time to do it. There's so many little pockets of time where you can just like right. pop in, like when you're cooking dinner, right? Like if you have a decent amount of space in your kitchen, like when something sauteing, oh drop down and do five burpees. Yeah, yeah, yeah burpees are like, the devil's creation. Oh my gosh, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess you could do that. <laughs> Well, no, but it's, I mean, you could do push-ups against the counter. Like, you know, there's so many different things. You can do the planks on the floor, right? Like uh, all of these different activities you can do, you can find easily online. Right. And which is actually important now that we're kind of, it's winter, it's a pandemic, we're not really going places. So we need to get a little creative and help our clients get creative with staying healthy. And that's literally the purpose of this episode. So what is our next study about? Well, what a great segue. Like, I love how all these are kind of tying in together. Um, Everybody's stuck at home. We know this is a really bad time of year for people struggling with uh, SAD. So the seasonal affective disorder, winter blues, uh, just being stuck at home, not being able to socialize and see loved ones. And so the the next article uh, is called Dietary Fiber and its Association with Depression and Inflammation. So this, again, like I know how good fiber is for us. It protects us against cardiovascular disease. It can decrease your risk of type two diabetes. Uh, It increases insulin sensitivity and it decreases your risk for metabolic syndrome. So all of these been, yes, well, we're going to get to that. So just hold your horses, (laughs) but we've known about all of these for a really long time. But what I didn't realize is fiber can actually decrease systemic inflammation because of what it does. Like it's, it's this inert thing that, or at least we thought it was this inert thing. Like you eat it, it just passes through your body and somehow along the way it interacts with us in a way that just improves our health. But you know, what we're learning from this study and all these other studies is fiber isn't this uninteractive thing that just kind of passes through us. Really what it does is once it gets to your colon, it starts interacting with all your microbes. It actually gets fermented, um, all of the different forms. And the main thing it does is it produces these short chain fatty acids, which we've talked about F, uh, SCFAs. The three main ones are acetate, propanate, I think that's how you pronounce that, uh, and butyrate. And it's these chemicals that are produced that work our way into our body and influence health. And so the promotion of the production of these uh, increase overall health in lots and lots of different ways. And of course, when we don't get a lot of fiber, we produce less. And so this, again, it's not that it detracts from our health, but it doesn't promote health, right? So we just have this less positive feedback. And so what they know, what they've seen is that the more fiber you have in your diet, the less at risk you are for depressive symptoms. And the link is through inflammation. And so the direct relationship we can see is there is less CRP, which is this C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker. You can go to your doctor and get tested for. And the higher it is in your blood, the more systemic inflammation you have. Typically, it's in direct response to injury or sickness, some type of pathogen, Um, something along those lines. They also see a connection with other cytokines, such as IL-6. There was like IL-1. There was a few different ones listed. 
there's not as tight a correlation. There's still a lot of research that has to be done with that. Um, the other thing I thought, thought was really interesting is they talked about leptin really? as an inflammatory marker. Yeah. And I was like, okay, hold on a sec. So I went back and looked. And so a refresher for those who don't remember, leptin is a hormone and it's the satiety hormone. So when you're hungry, your body produces ghrelin, which always makes oh, me think really? of I gremlins. Think of ghrelin which is, that's funny. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, but it's yeah. funny how you just get these associations. Right. So it makes me think of gremlins, which are the little yeah. monsters from the 80s, if anybody is in my age group, which make you hungry. And then as you eat, there is less ghrelin and more leptin and leptin is that that hormone that signals to your brain hey you know we've had as much as we need we're full we're satisfied what the understanding is is when you have like insulin sensitivity often what runs parallel is leptin insensitivity it takes more and more leptin to get you to feel full yes and so when you have more fiber and this kind of makes sense because fiber is really bulky right? Like it takes up a lot of space, but there's no calories involved. So it's a way of kind of expanding these tissues, which is one of the ways we stimulate leptin production right. is just like that right. physical expansion. Your body, it doesn't need to, to take as much leptin in order to get that full feeling. So you become more sensitive to leptin. And so you have this drop in leptin levels, but I just, I was, I was quite fascinated that and this was totally new information to me that leptin mm. is associated with inflammation so which kind of when you think about it makes sense with more fiber we see more adiponectin and this is an anti-inflammatory hormone that's produced by adipose tissue so it actually um, helps calm inflammation through that pathway uh, and then overall we have just a decrease in the amount of cytokines that our body produces and has floating around it did mention fiber is not the only factor because typically if you're eating a lot of fiber, I mean, the only places to get them is through a lot of vegetables and fruit, whole grains, yep. whole grains right. and legumes, beans and legumes. All of these also contain, <laughs> of course, plant-based, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they also contain um, other, lots of vitamins and minerals and antioxidants. So they're not just attributing a lot of these effects just to fiber. Like they do know that there is other factors involved. So it's not just any one thing, but here's where it gets interesting. So we've talked about how fiber increases microbiome. Like it, it feeds the microbiome because the, it's the microbiome that's fermenting. When we have all these good fibers, it promotes the growth right. of the desirable bacteria and the desirable bacteria increase these uh, uh, SCFAs. This has a direct effect on intestinal pH. So it can lower intestinal pH, which again, makes it a little bit more basic, not quite so acidic, which improves the health of the cells in the intestinal lining. Here's a really cool thing. It promotes the production of the proteins that are responsible really? for tight junctions. And so, right. you know, we're talking about gut health yes. and why the microbiome is so important, why fiber help plays a role. It can actually help with those tight junctions, which in holistic nutrition, we really talk about as leaky gut, but in the scientific community is really more of a gut permeability. Right. But either way, it's the same thing. We start having these gaps. This helps protect against cool. that. It increases neurotransmitter production. Yes, the gut makes a ton of neurotransmitters. 
Yes. And so like with the tight junctions, we have a little bit less inflammation because we don't have stuff sneaking through that shouldn't be sneaking through. And then back to the, the brain health as well, because all of these inflammatory markers reach the brain and affect the brain. So not only do we calm inflammation that is going to now stimulate the brain, but we are increasing neurotransmitter production and sustainability. So how well it's able to kind of linger in those areas that will help with brain health. It calms stimulation to the HPA axis, which is, which is one. Yeah. So it calms the stress in the brain there. And this is okay. This is where it gets cool. This is what I almost spilled the beans for before (laughs) it changes epigenetic regulation of BDNF brain derived neurotrophic factor. Right. Yes. So brain derived neurotrophic factor is involved in brain plasticity. And so this is how the brain is able to almost like regrow is probably not the right word, but recover and create these new um, communication and interactions, right? Like how well the brain is, is able to talk to yeah, it's itself. It's almost like resilience. Like it helps the brain in its resilience and overcoming things. Exactly. I did not know this fiber increases BDNF, which again, helps with nervous system function. It helps with brain function. So that's the other way it's really supporting uh, nervous system tissue. And then the other thing we talk about this a lot in um, holistic nutrition about dysbiosis. So when we consume fiber, I talked about how it promotes the growth of the bacteria we want. When we don't have that fiber, it actually promotes the growth of it's, it's a gram negative bacteria, which contains lipopolysaccharide. This is a saccharide that's found on the outside of the cells that stimulate inflammation and endotoxicity in the body. So we actually promote dysbiosis, which has a direct effect on inflammatory markers in the if body. If you don't get enough fiber. If you don't get enough right. fiber. And so by consuming fiber, we naturally select for the growth of the bacteria that don't contain this. And so we don't have that stimulation of the inflammatory pathways. Cool. So the bottom line health hack of your fiber is of course, just get more more fiber. fiber. Yeah. So, okay. So here's, here's my trick. This is my takeaway. Um, One of my favorite snacks. Sometimes I'll eat a big bowl for breakfast. I just thaw frozen blueberries which have a lot of soluble fiber, although we're just learning that may not be the right term anymore, Um, but lots of fiber in general. I get some yogurt. I get some, a little bit of chia seeds in there, a little bit of bran buds and some granola. And so not only am I getting lots of the desirable bacteria from the yogurt, but oh my God, this dish is like chock full of fiber and it's really tasty. Lots of, lots of crunch, lots of different textures. Um, Blue color. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, blueberries, there's so many studies on blueberries with the, the polyphenols and then some yes. of the Yeah. The other thing you can do again, so brand buds are something like you can add to lots of different things. Switch from chips to popcorn. If you like snack food, popcorn. popcorn. Oh, we go through yeah. so much popcorn in our house because I just, for many reasons, I just don't like buying chips. My family loves like chips and cheesies and stuff like that. Um, so we compromise and have popcorn with toppings. Sometimes I'll buy that stuff, but I'm like, I'd rather eat yeah. popcorn because then there's fiber and we can control what we put in it. So those are two really good things. And again, just making sure you're getting lots of veggies, fruit in its natural state, those like applesauces and stuff. Yeah, they're good, but like, just go to the source. 
just just eat the real stuff as opposed to the processed. And you can get apples all year round, right? There's such a hard yeah. fruit that even in the middle of winter, you can still get Canada grown apples yeah. here now at the grocery store. Yeah. But even things like, you know, eating lots of carrots, eating squashes, like this time of the year, you can get lots of squashes. Like just just eat more vegetables. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was so cool that we we have evidence showing this link between getting more fiber in our diet, it improves gut health, which directly improves uh, nervous system health and can help reduce your risk or symptoms of depression. And one of the mechanisms is by reducing inflammation in the body. Exactly. So, which is, I mean, there's going to be so many healthy outcomes to that as well. But again, the study was looking at depression and inflammation. So fascinating. And it's always good that they keep doing research on looking at new aspects of things that of course we know we should be lifting weights and we should be eating fruits and vegetables but the the growing bodies of evidence on like the mechanism and kind of honing in on different individual aspects yeah. of it is fascinating and that's part of the this health hacks episode. well and how it works yes like, i had no clue that one of the ways it improves like i knew there was a link between gut health and, and nervous system health but that it actually increases production of BDNF. I was like, no way, mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) Cool stuff, man. We love finding and sharing these uh, information with our listeners. My poor kids, I just have to say, my poor kids come up and they're like, what are you doing, mom? And I'm like, well. (laughs) (laughs) The poor things are like, note to self, don't ask mom. (laughs) Because then they get these science lessons, which they had no idea they were in for. Uh, my kids are going to be scientists, whether they like it or not, <laughs> or at least understand the yes, science. Which is because... so important. I mean, health science is evolving and we're learning so many more things, which is, yeah. you know, we could do an episode a day and not cover nearly as many studies as are being no. interesting. So, Oh, it's tempting to do more episodes, cool. but <laughs> real life gets in the way. Yes. Uh, so the last health hack, the fourth one that um, I wanted to talk about was about skeletal health, bone health. And this one specifically looks at nutritional supplements. We know weight training is great for your bones. Um, yeah. And um, this one looks specifically not just at, at nutrients, but on supplementation, which I think is really important because as nutrition professionals, we are often recommending supplements. And it's good to know which ones are worthwhile for what and which ones may not be because, and, and of course, when it comes to calcium and vitamin D, these are the ones that are generally recommended for bone health. Calcium and vitamin D yeah. together, not ne- not necessarily in one supplement, but taking them both as a supplement. And these nutrients, you you can get, you definitely can get enough calcium in your diet. It's hard to get enough vitamin D in your diet because we know it's a sunshine vitamin, so you also get, yeah. you know, from the sun, which is harder at this time. This time of year, it's definitely challenging. Exactly. So calcium and vitamin D combo, there is quite a bit of evidence that supports that it reduces the risk of fractures. And just as an aside, when you're looking at research for bone health, looking at the outcome that they're measuring is really important because some studies look at levels of calcium or vitamin D in the blood. Some studies look at bone density measurements. Fewer studies look at actual risk of fractures. And that's really yeah. the endpoint you're going for here. It, yeah. Sure, there's a link between levels in the blood and bone density. But what we really want to do is help people not 
break their bone. Yeah, that's that's the desirable outcome at the end of all of this. We want to increase bone density so that the risk of fractures decreases. Right. So these supplements are recommended in a lot of ways because people don't get enough calcium and vitamin D. This study is an American study, so they're looking at American numbers. I can't imagine Canada is going to be very different, although we may be getting less sunshine than people in the southern states. So there are going to be some differences. But this was a really cool study. It was just published in December 2020, and um, it's a review, so that's why I chose it. Now, so we are so we know how much of these are recommended because this is really important as a nutrition professional the vitamin d that's recommended every day is 600 ius or 15 micrograms ideally that's the recommended amount and in the u.s less than 10 percent of people get that through their diet oh right it's wow yeah that's not much at all no, it's- i'm kind of surprised it's so low though like 600 through is the diet so that's not that's excluding okay. the sunshine um, yeah but it does they also quoted the def- deficiency numbers so def- deficiency means you're getting not nearly enough that you need it's different from insufficiency a lot of people might get slightly less than what you need that yeah. more common but a deficiency means you're getting significantly less than what you need and in the u.s population the vitamin d deficiency levels around 40 percent what i know so about 40 percent of people in the u.s are not are deficient in vitamin d so this is one reason why vitamin d is a highly recommended supplement Mm -hmm. on the other hand you have the calcium so calcium levels are actually different between men and women yeah so calcium for men they recommend a thousand milligrams of calcium per day Okay. And this is for um, ages 50 to 70. So for for older adults. For women, it's 1,200 milligrams per day. Oh, more. Women do need slightly more calcium. I did not expect that. Well, you know the the risk of osteoporotic fractures in men versus women? Yeah. Men, it's a quarter. For women, it's half. Wow. So if you have osteoporosis and you are a woman you have a one in two chance of getting an osteoporotic fracture. It's a lot. Yeah, that is, that is a lot. And a lot, I mean, this really ties back to hormones is the difference between men and women. Um, Men have more testosterone, which does stimulate bone growth. So muscles are important for bone, right? Because it pulls on the, yeah, again, it pulls on the bone. It stresses it. Yes. Bone stronger. Well, and that's why strength training this is why strength training is so good for bone density because it's literally stressing. Here we go back to stress again. It's stressing the bone, which is stimulating the bone to say, okay, uh, we don't want something to happen. So we're going to, you know, build up strength in this area and it naturally increases bone density. Do you, do you want to hear an interesting random fact, which group of athletes have the highest bone density? Highest bone density weightlifting. Nope. What? Who? Gymnasts. Isn't that crazy? Smashing down. They because of the impact when they're landing. It's something. Oh god, I can't remember the number. It was like crazy high times gravity. Right. Was with the impact that they were, and so that this is why things like strength training, running, like impact exercises are so good because they stimulate bone density. Gymnasts, and I think this like gymnasts tend to be quite compact, shall we say? 
they start really young so that bone density starts at such a young age and this is why I don't think you see a lot of really tall gymnasts is because that bone like that's the compensation there this is not scientifically proven at all this is just my observation (laughs) And it's easier to do flips and tucks and stuff when you're shorter, when you're yes. right, um, as well. It, which is interesting because another thing that the study mentioned, which we already also knew, is you develop your bone mass as you're growing, and your yeah. bone mass is in and around age 20. Yeah. So how much calcium and vitamin D you've eaten prior to that? How much stress you've put on your bones before yeah. that kind of gets you to where you're going to start from because after in your 30s and 40s and then for women there's quite a significant drop after the menopause change you're starting from a higher level if you have a really good bone density in your early 20s um, because it will naturally reduce over time so that that's that's a fascinating thing so when it comes here's a takeaway health hacks when it comes to skeletal health right so so that the health and strength of your bones, calcium and vitamin D supplements have a lot of evidence behind them. They do decrease fracture risk in older people. There's multiple studies on this and um, the decreased risk is actually um, calculated to be between five and 19% reduced risk. So whatever your risk is at your wow. age with your, whether you're a male or a female, whatever your risk is at that point, if you are taking calcium and vitamin D, it's going to reduce your risk by between five and 19% from that starting. So not overall in the population. Nice. It's based on the starting point of what your risk originally would have been. Yeah. So to sum up, they did talk about a bunch of other um, supplements that people do tend to recommend and may have a little bit of evidence for, a little evidence against, limited evidence. So we're talking about things like vitamin K, we're talking about magnesium. Um, Strontium is actually recommended to be avoided because strontium actually makes your bones look stronger and denser because of the way it interacts uh, with the x-rays itself. When the bone density scans use x-rays and the strontium in your bones actually makes your bones look denser than they might actually be. That's recommended against, again, some of the side effects of calcium and vitamin D supplements to look out for would be, of course, stones. So renal stones, urinary tract stones. Yeah. That's why they recommend, of course, diet, get your calcium, vitamin D, especially calcium from foods as yes. much as you can. So you don't have to have giant amounts of supplements, but if you need it, they're available. They're widely available and wildly inexpensive for calcium. And that was basically it. If you, oh, and of course they recommend fruits and vegetables and protein because all of those help your diet to to get all of the nutrients you need. It's interesting, I didn't see any mention of dairy in this, but in reality, dairy is a good source of calcium, but in reality, it is not the only place yeah. you can get calcium and is not even necessarily the best place to get no. calcium. If you like dairy, enjoy dairy, get calcium from dairy, but don't feel that that you have to have dairy in order to get it. You know, you can measure the amount of calcium you eat. You can use a tracker, you can mark it down and you can see yeah. how much you eat on a regular basis. 
there's tons of databases and apps that will will help you do this. Bottom line. Yeah. Do you know what the highest concentration of calcium food is in food? Like just naturally occurring? Non-fortified. Okay. I'm wondering if you're, I'm full of like random facts, by the way. But this is, this is going to be like random or fact. Weight. Maybe this is probably based on calories. So this is based on concentration of calcium per hundred grams of food. Sesame seeds. <gasps> I love tahini. And it's where is sesame love used it. a lot? Middle East. Middle where East you don't have a lot of dairy. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it, I have, I'll, I'll link to this recipe that I love where you actually, it's chai tea, but it's made with tahini and almond butter. What? I, I have never heard of it's such a thing. So that sounds good. very interesting. It's nice and creamy. I mean, I eat dairy personally, so I'm not doing it to avoid it. But if you do, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll link to that recipe. Well, it's such a tasty food. Like you could add sesame seeds or the tahini you in calcium. lots of different. You get your protein yeah. too. Yeah. In there, creaminess. There you go. So there's the health hack, right? Like just increase sesame seeds and just yeah start tracking how much calcium you get in your diet and if you need so many people are deficient so if you need it you can take it yeah well it's i mean i know in alberta they don't even test for vitamin d levels anymore because they assume because you live in canada you're deficient and you should be taking vitamin which is so interesting because alberta's so sunny big sky country right it is, but in the winter, it's so low in the sky that even if you were to stand out in minus 40 naked, you still wouldn't get enough UV to produce enough vitamin right, D. in the winter. Yeah, and of course, we don't do that because it's so freaking cold here. <laughs> <laughs> so we're so bundled up because it's like today is minus 25, right. right? Like you don't go outside for long, long, long stretches of time. Right. And if you do, you're quite bundled yeah. up. So you get to see like the little bit of right. face and that's about it. And that's not enough sun exposure. And vitamin so, D is hard to get from foods. There are not a lot of foods that are greased. Yeah. Aren't mushrooms really high in vitamin D too? There though? are some mushrooms that they expose to UV light. And then oh, so like, that's crazy sunshine. And then that in the mushrooms themselves make vitamin D because they are exposed to the UV light. So you can get it from there. Interesting. I wonder what pathways. Okay. Here's a good biochemistry right. question. Do they use cholesterol to produce vitamin D as well? Or is there a different pathway they go through? I don't through? believe cholesterol is in. I know. So where, how are they making it? Vitamin D2 versus vitamin D3. But they work the same in the body. They, they are, per, that's a good question. We gotta, we gotta. Yeah. Well, I know synthetic like D3. No. Yeah. D3 is produced. Isn't this crazy? From sheep's wool. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Most of it is I think it's from the lanolin yes, from lanolin. sheep's wool. Yeah. D2. I don't know where it's produced it's from. I wonder. Based. Um, yeah. But what plant? I don't know. Maybe mushrooms. Like, I don't know. We got to find no. out. <laughs> so much to learn. So much to learn. But this has been awesome. Yeah, so cool. Thank you for sharing those really cool facts. It, you know, I think the studies are so interesting. I mean, it just reiterates stuff that we know. Be, and there's more evidence. There's more evidence about the benefits of fruits and vegetables, the benefits of fiber, yeah. the benefits of lifting, and how some people may need to take some calcium and D supplements, although other ones may not have as much evidence on them. So these are really important things that you can start working more on. And sometimes yeah. you just need a bit of inspiration. You're like, oh, you know, I knew that, but 
this was a really cool study and I got to think about how to incorporate that back into my life in a bigger level now. Well, and I think too, the importance of education, really, like you have to learn some key things, you know, for how to stay healthy and then you pick the right things for you. And I, I think that's really what needs to be the cornerstone of all health and nutrition is, you know, this isn't a one size fits all. You know, some people need more, some people need less, some people need different things. And so you have to figure out, okay, if I have this issue, what are my options? What one fits best with me so that I can actually do it and continue to do it. Needs are there and how you meet those needs is something that is important to do consistently. Awesome. So this was fantastic. Our first episode where we're hitting a bunch of studies and we're teaming it. We got some great health hacks to share. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed it. I hope so too. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe. Give us any feedback. We'd love to hear it, whether it's feedback on previous topics or other topics you'd like us to cover. Share with your friends. We want to hear from you and hopefully you're enjoying the podcast and letting other people that you think might be interested, letting them know about it as well. Definitely. We could all love to learn more together. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Have a great day, guys.